Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Andrew Amelanks, author of Exquisite Wickedness, Two Murders and the Making of Poe's The Telltale Heart, published by the History Press. Thanks again for joining us, and enjoy. Andrew, welcome back to Crime Capsule. We're delighted to have you back with us. Great to be back. Thanks. Where we left off last week, the murder of Joseph White had been investigated, tried, murderer was convicted, uh, sentences were pronounced, and bodies were hanging from the gallows, and things went quiet. Catch us up to where Edgar Allan Poe is at this time, though. So in the 1830s, up until kind of the moment of 1840, when our next murder takes place. Sure. So in the part of the so at the time of the um, uh, the murder in Salem, he uh, Poe was um, on his way to um, to West Point. He had uh, his. So I guess we need to sort of describe br- briefly his relationship with his uh, not quite adoptive father, um, John Allen. Um, Poe's both Poe's parents, who were um, actors, died um, relatively close to one another when he was very young, and. Um, the, uh, John Allen and his wife took in Poe and raised him, but uh, strangely never formally adopted him. And uh, you know, that, that sort of comes into play later on. Um, as as Poe gets older, he and John Allen's relationship really just sort of disintegrates. And, you know, like he, you know, it's like Allen does everything by half measures. He, you know, he's like, yeah, but I'm going to send you to UVA. So he sends him to the University of Virginia without providing any of the things he, that Poe needs to, in order to, you know, room and board, you know, just. Yeah, to survive. To survive. Yeah, of course. And um, he, uh, and, you know, Poe eventually uh, runs up a bunch of debts trying to survive. And then you know, has to quit school and is, you know, John Allen's like, I can't believe you ran up all his debts. Like, um, and, you know, so, uh, so, uh, Poe runs off and joins the army under a, an assumed name and then, um, comes, ends up, uh, when his, when his, uh, when his adoptive mother dies, he goes back. He, at the time you could, pay somebody else to take your place in the army. So that's what he did. And, uh, and he comes back and, and realizes that his relationship with John Allen's just broken. So he thinking that this is what his, what Allen wants. He joins West, he he goes to military Academy at West point. And it's a pretty much a fiasco. Um, and, uh, eventually he, um, he figures out a way to get kicked out 
<laughs> and um, and sort yeah. of, uh, you know, at this point, it's he, not easy. I guess no, you, no, you have to work to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, it, was like a, it was a process for sure. You had to like, you know, sit around and not do anything for months. Um, but uh, so he after after that he uh, he sort of makes his way his own way as a, a journalist and editor and um uh and by the 1840s he's um uh in philadelphia and uh, he's married to his young cousin virginia clempo and um he uh is already starting to he, he, he you know he always considered himself a poet and um and then sort of realized that he could make a a better living writing these short stories and um and that's so that's sort of what he in the 1840s that's what he was sort of focused on he was um editing different um uh he was the editor for several different uh, magazines and um and writing short stories and was starting to make a name for himself so He's made a little money as a writer. It's not enough, but he kind of keeps going. And uh, he's trying to do a little editing work. That doesn't pan out exceptionally well for him, but he's keeping his head up and, and trying to do what he can. But his awareness of this particular case, this murder in 1840, it would have been limited at best. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he probably was aware of it just through the New York newspapers that he was and Philadelphia newspapers as well. But, uh, he, you know, he just as, a he was very interested in, in, you know, everything that was going on in with the literary world and the journalistic world. So he was, he was probably aware of it, but not, uh, you know, it wasn't like he wrote down, you know, details of it and was like, Oh, I got to use this. I mean, that, that's the one thing about this is that, um, you know, he never, there's, he never clearly stated, I use these two murders as inspiration for this story. You know, it was, it was more like, um, over the, over the years, um, you know, Poe experts figured out where, you know, based on, you know, their, research where this you know that that these were the two things that helped inspire inspire the story so and your account opens here interestingly on a boat for the second murder and on this boat it's a ferry from new york to new jersey um we meet someone who is pivotal to this whole story who do who do we meet on this particular ferry crossing that's a um, guy named Peter Robinson. He's a, um, uh, sort of this, uh, your average guy who, um, you know, runs into somebody he knows from New Brunswick, New Jersey, where he's from. And asks this sort of very strange question about, uh, you know, uh, about, um, how, how you would transfer a deed um, without the other person, uh, being involved in the transfer. And this is, um, 
you know, it, it was just a very odd conversation. And, um, and it, it, from, from there, it just, uh, you know, it, it just gets odder and odder, you know, this, <laughs> this, uh, this really sort of, you know, like the Joseph White murder, this, this, um, victim, Abraham side of, well, at first they don't know what happens to him. He just disappears off the face of the earth. This guy, Abraham Sidem was, um, you know, he was, a sort of New Brunswick's, um, you know, the, sort of uh, yeah, everybody knew him he was you know he was heavily involved in um you know the sort of civic activities in the city and um but he also had a, a business where he would um where he would um uh sell sell properties and um also provide the uh the financial you know the the loans to these typically poorer people in New Jersey, um, or you know the of the sort of barely work, making it as you know uh, working class people, and uh, yeah, laborers, just sort of like traditional tradesmen, laborers, right? I mean, guys who knew how to um, frame or you know in this particular case, lay flooring, which comes into focus, <laughs> uh, you know, short, shortly. But it's funny, when it, when I was reading your account of Sidem, I, I didn't exactly want to call him a slumlord, but he definitely made some yeah, money off yeah. of this, like, yeah. you know, he was more than that, and that's a little pejorative, but it, at least the kind of structure of slumlordism was present in how he ran his operations and it wasn't it wasn't a scam to offer houses for cheap and then you know like put these heavy liens on the equipment and so forth it wasn't a scam but it was a scheme right yeah. i mean there was there was an yeah, angle it was a money to it. making you know it wasn't like he was doing out of this out of the kindness of his heart for for sure you know uh, no. it has a you know a, um a Dickin, Dickinsidian sort of, um, you know, feel to it where, you know, it's like the, 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 you know, the Charles Dickens, um, you know, sort of character who is not, you know, who's, who's doing something because, you know, and it might appear to be, um, you know, out of the kind of start, but no, it's, it's definitely, it's a, it's a way for him to make money. And also, you know, it seemed at least with Robinson is that, yeah, is that it's, um, you know, he's, he, he gets him to the point where he can't pay and then he's already built the house. So what happens if he can't pay, then he gets to take the house back. That's now completely built. Right. And if it wasn't already clear, we, we do need to say that the connection between these two men is that uh, Robinson was um, Sidem's sort of client-slash-tenant. Yes. And there was this sort of like weird relationship where the boundaries kind of like you know, fuzzed into one another, didn't they? And, and you know, really it was... Uh, 
Sidem had a good a good racket going. He got all these guys to build cheap houses for him, and then if they couldn't, if they pay, couldn't then... afford to pay him off, he would just take the house. I mean, like that's a yeah, that's a one way to do it, yep. I suppose. Um. So yeah, so Abraham Sidem disappears suddenly one night, um, right before. Yep. Uh, I guess actually on thanks Thanksgiving and um, so suspicion fairly quickly falls on Peter Robinson just because he is just not the not the smartest cat out there. He's <laughs> you know he's he's showing off this um, very expensive uh, pocket watch that people recognize to have belonged to Sidon, you know, and, um, he's soon, uh, you know, accused of the murder and uh, eventually confesses and they, uh, discover that he had brought, you know, invited him over to the house to allegedly to pay, you know, his, his loan to him and then murders him and then buries him in, in the cellar under uh under the floorboards yep can we can we do one thing before we get to that exact moment uh andrew because you have an exceptional amount of detail as we were discussing last week with respect to the joseph white murder you have an exceptional amount of detail with respect to the inquest and the investigation and again the whole town of new brunswick sort of turns out to start tromping around looking for evidence and you know it's again one of these sort of comical scenes where everybody's uh you know suddenly uh, putting their their gumshoe hat on you know that sort of thing and and <laughs> and yet you have there's one or two things i want to draw out i mean number one you have an extraordinary amount of dialogue preserved in the in your account of as they're walking around talking to one another and as people are interrogating Robinson. And um, I mean, where did, where did this material come from? Because typically this kind of, this kind of very detailed conversational level of information is, is not often preserved. Where did you find that? Uh, A lot of it comes from, um, interestingly, uh, in, Newspaper accounts, but not in the sense of a traditional newspaper account. But in, um, at the time, a, lo- um, a lot of um, newspapers would just uh, uh, have uh, these, um, you know, they like somebody involved in the case would just send a letter to the newspaper and they would just print the entire letter as, as uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, they would print the um, print the letter, and you know, and a lot of these letters were from people involved in the case who, um, at the time, or you know, or um, later on, letters that were written. I, I found some letters that were written between people involved, you know, this New Brunswick townspeople who had shared. Um, their recollections with you know with with let's say a friend in wherever you know in new york had you know there's the letter um but oh you know and um 
uh, and then some uh, of them, a, a lot of dialogue also comes from the, the, the trial where people would, you know, say, oh, this is, I remember this is what, you know, what he said or whatever. So, <coughs> um, so a lot of it, yeah, it's just sort of having to pick through all these different sources to, to, um, to sort of reconstitute the, 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 um, the dialogue into. Well, there's this incredible scene, which may have been my absolute favorite scene in your entire book in which everybody is downstairs in Robinson's house. Uh, this house that he had built ostensibly for himself and for his family, uh, but which Abraham Sidon was about to repossess. And uh, everybody is there, right? You've got the mayor, you've got the town council, you've got sort of the constables. And and there's this, uh, of course, I have to say that like in the age of internet sleuths, you know, like I can just hear like, all of these citizen journalists salivating <laughs> over the thought that they would actually get to help solve the crime, you know, like right then that moment. But no, my favorite, my favorite scene is that you've got the entire investig- investigatory body downstairs in Robinson's house, and they are arguing passionately about how hard it is to take up a floor and Robinson is sort of saying, "Oh no, no, no! the The walls will come down if you take up these floorboards." And I just have to say, so I do some carpentry, and I have just laid a floor in my house from about five feet away from where I am currently sitting. <laughs> and I can I can assure you, <laughs> for anyone out there who doesn't know the trade, that is not how floors or walls work. Right. right? Exactly. And and there's this sort of hilarious, surreal scene where everybody's downstairs like they're just they're coming almost to blows about well, if if you take this down this way, all the beams are going to collapse, right. and Robinson is des- desperate for them not to take up this very suspicious, freshly laid floor. And you just you can't make it up. You absolutely can't make it up. I was I was totally and permanently charmed by that <laughs> moment. So thank you, thank you for including it. Yeah, yeah, no, it was very funny that you know he was obviously just was anything he could think of you know to to prevent them he was like ah yeah no 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 the whole house will come crashing down on us i mean <laughs> on, on on us right it's gonna yeah. happen right now if yeah. we do this right. no it was fantastic absolutely amazing so andrew i'm gonna ask you to read a, a section of your book here because we do actually need to pivot very sharply from the sort of the amusing the funny the comic um moment, you know, where they're all sort of standing around doing this, we we actually do need to pivot to the grisly, the macabre, you know, the horrific, because in our series on holiday horror, uh, which we are, um, we're about to experience some, um, we need to know what they found. And I was wondering if because this was real. This is, this is, you know, this is not the Poe story. This is what actually happened to a man who was innocently 
who was innocent of crime and who was murdered, right? I mean, he might not have been morally innocent, but he was, he had committed no crime. He was murdered. Um, would you just read the paragraph? It's on page 107 of your book. It's the two paragraphs that begin, Smith picked up a spade, which is just sort of like that, that phrase alone does kind of a lot for the imagination, um, doesn't it? Just that paragraph and the next paragraph that ends at the top of 108. I'd love for our listeners to be able to hear this. Smith picked up a spade and shoved it into the soft earth. About 15 inches down, he felt something. He pushed his hand deeper and grabbed hold of some cloth. His fingers grasped and searched. It was a leg. He continued hunting around with his hand. I take an oath that there's a body down there, he told the other man. Danbury shoved his hand in and felt what he believed was the seam of a man's pantaloons. Randolph did the same in his turn and agreed it was a body. They began to dig, each taking a turn with the shovel. About four feet down, they could make out the, they could make out the shape of a body. At this depth, the earth was muddy and bog-like. Randolph shoved his hand in again, caught hold of something, and yanked. Out popped an arm, he grabbed by a cold claw-like hand. They cleared more dirt until they had completely revealed the corpse. It was on its left side, with the leg drawn up in a fetal position. The three-foot-long space had been too short for the body to be stretched out. It was still dressed except for a hat, and someone had tossed a coat over it. And that's Abraham Sidem. Yep. Yeah. So Robinson is escorted fairly quickly off to jail. I mean, there's a little bit of an investigative work, which um, looks at blood spatters and sort of brings in a couple of other carpenters to serve as forensic detectives, which I thought was also kind of, kind of great. But, um, you know, Robinson is basically thrown straight into jail uh, for this. But w- what's interesting is that he, for at least a little while, doesn't he maintain his innocence. He actually says, oh, there was a mysterious visitor. There was somebody else. I mean, he sort of, he puts up a little bit of a front as he's awaiting his, um, his actual court, uh, his court date. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's about as believable as the, if you pull up the, um, you know, floorboards, the, the house will collapse, you know, I mean, it's like this, it's like, oh yeah, this mysterious guy paid me to do it, and he said, "Go ahead and keep the, you know, keep all of uh, Sidem's things, keep his watch, and uh, you know, all the paperwork you need to make the house yours." And I'll, I'll I just, I'll, I only want him dead, you know. And it's like, you know, the the the, sh- the sheriff is like, kind of, you know, to just to cover his bases, you know, it's like, well. He sets he sets he sets up a, a trap for this mysterious character who you know um, Robinson claims is going to come visit him in the jail and of course nothing comes of it. Um, um, yeah, and Robinson was not the not the, the smartest criminal by any means. It's the sharpest tack in the box. Yeah, you know the during the trial it was interesting, but Andrew, because you had actually quite a quite a stark contrast to the trial of 
Dick Crown and Shield and the Knapp brothers from 10 years earlier, because this this trial, you had a parade of witnesses, including some of the sort of characters that you'd introduced us to in the opening section, like Sidem's jeweler and his banker and so forth. And, and even Robinson's brothers come in and they, they just don't, they don't help his case. No, nothing is helping Robinson <laughs> here. But, you know, what was interesting was the contrast between uh, the, the, the Knapp brothers and the Crown and Shield trial and this trial, because there's no uh, shenanigans here. I mean, there's no sort of hung juries. There's no uh, extorted confessions from ministers who are deceiving their pastoral charges. I mean, it's just, this is actually fairly open and shut, isn't it? Yeah, there was no doubt in anyone's mind, including mine, that, that he was he was the guilty party and, and did it all on his own, you know. Um, the you know the the earlier case there was the you know, as you mentioned there was a lot of um, a lot of uh, prosecut- prosecutorial um, shenanigans you might say um, but this one was yeah this one was pretty clear that Robinson had done it and he had done it because he had thought that there was no other way to get. That you know, it, no way to get out of losing his house, but to kill the guy who owned, you know, who who he owed money to. You know, there's this interesting moment in the story where I've said many times on Crime Capsule that we don't seek to glorify killers. We seek to, or sensationalize them, we seek to understand them. And, you know, when you look at Robinson's case, there is an element of actual tragedy to it because even though he was underwater in debt, I mean, there is this moment in the uh, sort of the pretrial proceedings and so forth where someone comes to him and says, you know, if you had just asked Sidem for a chance to renegotiate the loan so that you and your family would not have to be evicted, right? That sort of thing. You know, there's a there's a chance that Sidem would have gone along with that, that Sidem was not some sort of uh, money-grubbing slumlord after all, but maybe he could have found a new a new arrangement to keep Robinson in house and home at the at the onset of this brutal winter, you know, the holiday season. And and maybe Sidem would would have you know, made it out alive. And, uh, you know, there's this sort of, and maybe Robinson wouldn't have, have killed the guy. I mean, right. there's just this kind of like that the story could have gone either way at that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was sort of the, the, the saddest part of it was that it, none of that had to happen. Well, the verdict does not take very long, uh, to no. be rendered. Does it? Nope. Nope. It was very, very quick. About half an hour, as I recall, from your from your book. Yep. And what what's interesting is that bringing this back to sort of the bird's eye view, and you know, pulling back the lens as we get back to Edgar Allan Poe, there is this fascinating moment as Peter Robinson is sitting in jail awaiting his execution, that another one of these reporters from the New York Press uh, comes down and who'd been following this the whole time. Uh, and sits with him for 
days and days and days before his execution and actually forms just like a genuine human bond with Peter Robinson. And and what comes out of that, and I'd love for you to tell us about this, is Robinson comes to trust this reporter enough and confide in him that he offers a full, detailed confession that he'd given to nobody else. Which is pretty pretty amazing that, yeah, that, you know, that it was the reporter who was sitting there taking down the confession and not, you know, not the, not anybody, you know, with the uh, state or, you know, related to the the thing. Um, And yeah, you know, and he, he very clearly describes the sort of gruesome details of this, of this murder. Um, and uh, William Atry, the the reporter, um, you know, actually has another. Interestingly, has another connection to to Poe because it was William Atry that um, covered the Mary Rogers story, um, yeah. Yeah. top to bottom, which is you know where how Poe ended up discovering this the the Salem murder and from reading, you know, just because he had, he had of his involvement in trying to uncover the, who had killed Mary Rogers. So they, there's all these little connections like that, that are super interesting to me. Yeah. And you also have the one where Atri, the reporter in the 1840 murder, he had been the protege of this now senior reporter, Barrett, James Barrett, who had reported on the 1830 murder. So it's sort of like passing the torch, you know, almost. I mean, I, I did, I did want to say listeners who really do love the macabre and the grizzly, uh, I exhort you to read Andrew's account of Robinson's full confession, um, because Robinson does give a, I'm just going to have to use the phrase, a blow by blow of how he <laughs> killed Sidem. And yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be cute, <laughs> but like it really is. And, and, you know, to understand the mind of, of someone who is so clearly driven by desperation and fear and rage all at once in that moment. I mean, it is, it is an extraordinary read and there's sort of a few particular horrible details that are not in- interestingly in Edgar Allan Poe's short story, the telltale heart, but that are in, uh, in, Robinson's confession, one of which was, uh, this is not a spoiler, was that Sidon was actually still alive when Robinson threw him in the pit. I mean, he was barely alive, but he but he was alive. And that just really chilled me, I have to say, Andrew. That 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 really kind of got me that moment. You know? Yeah, it was disturbing for sure. But we will let our listeners uh, seek out that particular account for themselves. What was interesting, though, with respect to those last days before Robinson's execution, and we're going to come back to to Poe here in just a second, was that Robinson was deeply concerned about what was going to happen to his body, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. I mean, he he sort of like begs begs them, don't don't let them do anything to my corpse. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, at the time it was, 
you know, uh, not unheard of for convicted murderers to uh, their bodies to be sent to um, various institutions who would study their uh, head or their, their, their skulls and their brains and to try to sort of discover whether there was a some sort of you know whether murderers had a certain um brain shape or skull shape so it was uh it was his his fears were not unfounded there's this amazing quote direct quote from robinson where he says don't let them make medicine of me yeah you know it allows this this these two guys from new york city to come and take a uh, uh, mold in his of his head because they had you know these guys have this uh, collection of famous people including famous murderers so he um, there were phrenologists and you know it's like this this racist pseudo study of pseudoscience of being able to uh, determine things about your personality based on the shape of your skull clearly clearly uh totally sound yeah. investigatory principle there <laughs> right um um there's this kind of one one kind of shocking moment where the gallows doesn't work and they have to do it again <laughs> which is awful but um take us to the moment then that was all sort of 1840 it, it's a couple years later take us to the moment when poe takes these threads that have taken a decade right to appear before him 1830 1840 and here he is help us to understand the moment at which he is weaving these threads together into what is arguably one of the most famous short stories of all time so it was um in the late uh, later part of 1842 around november he's Still trying to get out from this mountain of debt, and he um, he he has this this idea of creating a short story that and he you know and he he this this was this part was actually you know came straight from him. He wrote it. He wrote it down. What he in a letter about what he was trying to create with this story, which. Um, was uh, this uh, tale of a cold-blooded murderer who, um, you know, told from that the, the killer's perspective, and um, uh, that didn't, unlike many of his other stories, didn't rely on. Um, the sort of the fantastic and the the uh, you know in the uh, or in fantasy or or sure or, supernaturalism and that right, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, he wanted it to be more naturalistic and and um, and I think that's probably why it, it has such uh, remains such a powerful story because you know he he he. he sort of forces you to to into the perspective of this killer and 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 the why this killer makes these choices um and you know and it and it, for these two murders it's obviously the 
the details of what what he does with the body comes from the Robinson case. It's just, you know, they're so closely connected. Um, but the, but it's, it's really, um, it's Daniel Webster's description of the cold blooded killer and what, you know, from, from the trial that really, that you can, you know, you can really see the connections that Poe took from that and, and incorporated into his story. You write near the end of your book that Poe actually had multiple legacies. I mean, he had, as is commonly known, a very tragic end to his own life, uh, which, you know, we can read about in many different places. But you write that he actually had a legacy which went far beyond just the kind of uh, spooky fiction or kind of the gothic horror, you know, that sort of thing. You write that he made a contribution to a new genre of writing altogether, which is crime fiction, detective fiction, that he, in his portrayals of Auguste Dupin and so forth, there, there's this sort of sense of, of a new emergent kind of storytelling that was not, in fact, there before. And for all of those crime buffs out there, you know, in the world today, I mean, they owe their love of the genre in part to what Poe created. Yeah, no, he, he really did... Um, paved the way for, for you know, not just um, the uh, the detective fiction, um, or you know, not, in, but but just sort of incorporating true crime into into the details of or in. To, for, or using them as a basis to create his his uh, powerful short stories. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty incredible how um, how far-reaching and his his work was. It's uh, you know you can't you can't have you know, you're not going to have whodunits. You're not going to have, um, you know, you're not going to have crime fiction in general without him. So, I, I mean. What would right? Agatha Christie have been doing yeah. otherwise? We wonder. We wonder. Let me, let me ask you this. Are there any, for crime junkies listening today who would like to revisit their roots, say, um, are there any stories of Poe's that's, that come sort of directly to mind as you would want to recommend, you know, this one or that one to them to say, this is really where the genre was born? Uh, the, it's the mystery of Marie Roger that really um, is, yeah, it, 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 it's not just, important because it's um you know the beginnings of of um of detective fiction but he it, it's it's sort of amazing because he um actually was trying to solve a murder through the um fictionalizing of the story and, and using um, 
sort of logic to try to discover who who actually murdered um, Ma uh, Mary Rogers in New York. Um, and yeah, the, 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 I think, um, yeah, look, definitely the, the mystery of Marie Roger is super important for that. Well, now that it's in public domain, anyone can just go ahead and grab a copy and very easy to find and, um, you know, uh, accessible in in the extreme. Um, Andrew, one, one last question for you. First of all, thank you so much for taking us through this incredible journey. I mean, there are, there are moments which are both high and low through it, but just to see how that fabric of Poe's story comes together over so many years is really remarkable. And I did not, um, I, I couldn't have seen such a successful account of a biography of a short story before I held this book in, in my hands. So I really appreciate what you've done. Um, last question for you is where can uh, listeners find you and your work if they want to read some of your other books or learn about uh, Murder and Mayhem and the Hudson Valley or, you know, all these other, other kinds of, uh, you know, bits of mischief and, and, uh, misdoing that you get up to in your free time. AndrewRamblings.com. Just, uh, that's where you'll find everything about me. All right. Well, good luck with the new book on the satellites. And we just are so appreciative of your time. Thank you for joining us here on the show. It's been a real pleasure and uh, super fun. Really, really great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Andrew Amelinx, author of Exquisite Wickedness, Two Murders and the Making of Poe's The Telltale Heart, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org slash shop slash Crime Capsule. Join us next time for the next installment of our series on holiday horror. See you then. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press, and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.